this is Bridget. And this is Emily. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, I could not be more excited to talk about a person who really dominated a lot of my childhood obsession and is sort of back in the media landscape right now. And that person is none other than Tanya Harding. Do you have any personal feelings about Tanya Harding? I have this like vague recollection of Tanya Harding and the scandal that was on the news in my home, you know, playing on the television when we were kids. I really was not super engrossed in it, but I think the myth and the lore around the drama that unfolded between Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan has been played up so much. It's really interesting to see it getting its cinematic credit now and with this new film that's coming out. Exactly. I should say right off the bat that I have not seen I, Tanya, the movie in theaters right now starring Margot Robbie, um, purposely because I didn't want the movie in my head as I prepared for this episode. I wanted to sort of go in fresh and sometimes these movies mix fact and fiction and I wanted to be able to have a good sense of what actually happened without having the movie yeah. get in my head. Although Margot Robbie is amazing and we should all go support her because I think she's awesome. Definitely. I am someone who has always been drawn to women in public who get a lot of scorn. I'm talking women like Tanya Harding. I'm talking women like Yoko Ono. I'm talking women like Courtney Love. I've always been attracted to the women in media, in Hollywood, in sports, who everyone seems to love to hate. And I think it tells us so much about our culture and how we think about gender and powerful women. Yes. And Tanya Harding absolutely fits the bill because she was widely maligned, right? I mean, her reputation went into the toilet. And many would say, myself included, for good reason, because the scandal that we're about to recall for y'all was a big one, was a doozy. However, like most realities, it's more nuanced and complicated than you might think. And it's not as simple as painting a woman like Tanya Harding as this evil, calculating villain, per se. When you look closer at a lot of women who've been maligned in the public eye, who've been deemed hot messes, are often victims themselves. And maybe they're not these evil, calculating women who are deserving of all of that scorn. Definitely. Even on Twitter, I saw a lot of chatter from people um, who were outraged that the actual real-life Tanya Harding was invited to the Hollywood A-list premiere of I, Tanya. And people said things like, why are we, you know, she's a criminal. Why are we, you know, lauding her? Why is she, you know, walking the red carpet? And I thought, gee... Don't we do the same thing with male criminals all the time? Didn't we make an entire movie about mobster Henry Hill called Goodfellas? Didn't we make an entire movie about Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street? It seems like to me when a man is a high profile, nefarious character, it's totally okay to tell their story. It's totally okay to laud them and sort of make them into this anti-hero that everybody kind of admires or likes. But when it's a woman, it somehow seems like it's not okay. Well, as much as I want to cheer that on, I also feel like the simplicity of the Tanya Harding visual, you know, this woman being behind the the takedown of another woman lends itself in such a salacious, personal way to that old media trope that women are out to get other women and that, you know, it became much more of an easily understood crime than 
Wolf of Wall Street's crimes and Henry Hill's crimes. You know what I mean? That's definitely true. And this is actually a good place to say we have our series on problematic faves. I'm not saying that Tanya Harding is my problematic fave. I am saying that a lot of my friends might call me a Tanya Harding apologist. I'm someone who will forever be pointing out the nuance that you just said when we look back on her story. Right. And I think it's just important because as women, it's so easy for our stories to lose nuance and turn into that media trope of a devious woman took down a, an innocent woman in the sake of gold and ice skating glory and all the nuance gets yeah. lost. And I think it's so easy to turn women into punchlines even if these women have been victims of violence, victims of abuse, which Tanya Harding certainly was. Exactly. So keep an open mind. Buckle up, y'all, because you're about to hear way more about the Tanya Harding story than I certainly knew and that I think many people fully understand about this story. And I think that's why the show is important, because we want to shed light on the nuance behind what can sometimes be an oversimplified, sexist telling of the Tanya Harding story. So first, let's let's back up a second, Bridget, and just recap. Like, what exactly went down for all of our Gen Z folks out there who are like, who the hell is Tanya Harding? Uh, for all of y'all out there who don't know who she is, Tanya Harding was this very strong skater from Oregon. Now, people can say a lot about Tanya Harding, but you cannot say she's not an accomplished skater. She was the first female skater at the U.S. Championships to win the title with the event's first ever 6.0 given to a single female skater for technical merit. She was the first woman to ever complete a triple axel in a short program, and she was the first woman to successfully execute two triple axels in a single competition. She even went on to be the first ever to complete a triple axel combination with a double toe loop. So basically, if you're thinking, what the heck does any of that mean? She's an incredibly accomplished skater, and her name is in the history books right. with all of these firsts. And we're not sports journalist, just to reiterate. And even if you're like me and you're like a triple, what? Like, what is that exactly? Just know that her technical achievement in her domain, in her athleticism, was undeniable. And this is back in 1991, and she's pushing the boundaries on what was even seen as possible in her sport. And you've got to give credit where credit is due. She was, she was dominating. She was dominating. But here's the thing. Even though Tanya Harding was clearly a really, really good athlete, unfortunately, with like so much of women's sports, it's about so much more than technical competence. And so any woman look at her and say she was a great skater, but she had a hard time because of a lot of other things, because she didn't have the body type many associated with being a professional skater. She had very muscular thighs because her skating style was often considered to be sort of fiery and athletic as opposed to poised and graceful. And it's interesting how this played out throughout the commentary of the way that she rose to prominence. Enter Nancy Kerrigan. So Nancy Kerrigan was pretty much one of Tanya Harding's biggest competitors, whereas Tanya Harding was sort of considered the girl from the wrong side of the tracks. Nancy Kerrigan, despite also having working class roots, was sort of presented as this poised, graceful skater who was really a competitor of hers. And so in 1994, her main competitor, Nancy Kerrigan, was attacked by an assailant later identified as Shane Stant after a practice during the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Detroit. So basically what happened is that Nancy Kerrigan was walking off the ice, getting done with the practice. 
somebody ran up to her and she hit her. She was off the ice? Yes. Yeah, so I she thought was, she was skating on. No, no. So she was wow. skating on the ice. She was finishing up a practice. She gets off the ice. And this is actually all on video. Um, I don't think the actual attack is on video, but the beginning right before the attack and the aftermath are all on video. Uh, she's getting off and somebody runs up to her and hits her in the leg with what was later revealed to be one of those uh, telescopic um, battalions. Oh, my God. And this was like an iconic moment, one, for young Bridget, but two, I think in pop culture and sports in general, we all remember that scene of Nancy Kerrigan clutching her leg and saying, why, why, why? So it turned out that her leg was only bruised, not broken, but the injury did force her to withdraw from the national championship. What you said before about this being sort of made for that kind of narrative about a trashy girl from the wrong side of the tracks taking down America's sweetheart, I get it. That is too juicy of a scoop to not exploit, and exploit it, the media did. As you might imagine, the entire thing turned into a, a media frenzy, I think the likes of which skating has probably never seen before. <laughs> right. Uh, 400 members of the press jammed into their practice rink in Norway, and famous figure skater Scott Hamilton complained that the press world was turning the Olympics into another sensational tabloid event. The tape-delayed broadcast of the short program at the Olympics remains one of the highest-watched telecasts in American history. This media frenzy also led to one of my favorite Tanya Harding kind of blips in the whole scandal was her wearing a sweatshirt that just said no comment because so many press and reporters, including Connie Chung, one of my media idols, were hounding her day and night. So the thing really turned into a huge, huge just media frenzy. And that no comment sweatshirt did not help Tanya Harding's PR game whatsoever. But... Maybe PR training was never going to be something that she was going to have access to. Because even that, I think, plays into this idea of her as this, quote unquote, like white trash person that she didn't behave the way that you might expect someone who was going through this media firestorm to behave. There's this very famous interview where Tanya is asked about the allegations that she had something to do with the Nancy Kerrigan situation. And... Rather than having some line that she's practiced or rehearsed, she just gets up and, and ends the interview. She's like, takes the wires off of her and is like, this interview is over. And it's not a surprise to me that her inability to kind of play that media game just made her look so much worse. It yeah. just made her look, everyone who said, oh, she's trashy, she's this, she's that. They were like, see, of course she's trashy. Look at her sweatshirt. She didn't even, she didn't even respectfully answer that question. I mean, you have to understand her background to understand where she's coming from and to understand how this is not a story that could happen today. Because in the social media era, everyone has some PR savvy. And she just didn't. She was an athlete first and foremost. This is a woman who, you know, despite being called too macho and not fitting the graceful, poised, traditionally feminine, beautiful gender role that she was supposed to uphold as a figure skater... This is a woman whose mother had been married. You know, take this or leave it as you want, by the way. This is not us judging anything, but this is for you to draw your own conclusions. Her mother had been married six times to six different men, or perhaps seven, depending on the journalists that you want to listen to. She owned her first rifle, a twenty-two, when she was still in kindergarten, which to me sounds like an overstatement for sure. And reports say that she had moved 13 times by the fifth grade and dropped out of high school at 15, even though, in fact, she later obtained her GED. She drank beer. She played pool. She smoked. Even though she had asthma, she raced cars at the Portland International Raceway. I mean, to me, all of this 
about Tanya Harding makes the fact that she was a record-breaking Olympian even more impressive to me. I mean, the things she overcame, the privileges she did not have to go and become one of the world's best figure skaters, to me, makes her even more astounding. But when juxtaposed with Nancy Kerrigan, the sweet, coy, innocent, super feminine image of the perfect figure skater that sponsorships would be falling over themselves to get on the cover of their Wheaties box, it makes sense that they painted her as this trashy nobody and discredited her, even though she had so much incredible athleticism going for her. Yes, and I think that that's why so many people, myself included, really rooted for her, even as it became more and more apparent that she was involved with what happened to Nancy Kerrigan. And so I remember as a kid thinking, it's nice to see somebody who doesn't come from privilege and money. And again, keep in mind, neither did Nancy Kerrigan. But the story that we were told was that she rose above her sort of girl from the wrong side of the tracks lifestyle to accomplish something great. And that was something that I think a lot of folks saw as inspirational. And I think even as the heat started to rise around her, when it became clear that her husband was responsible for this attack on Nancy Kerrigan and that maybe she knew about it or had a hand in planning it. As that became more and more clear, I think a lot of people, maybe even a young Bridget Todd, thought, gee, it's just nice to see somebody like, quote unquote, like us win. And I think that that's why so many people to this day have these tense and complicated feelings around her. Because honestly, not only is it about gender, it's about class. I think that when you see someone who is maligned for not having class markers. Again, Nancy Kerrigan also had a working class background, but she somehow embodied a a different kind of working class background. Yeah. Kind of a more wholesome. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is the narrative is problematic despite the reality. Because you know what is problematic is anyone taking a metal post to Nancy Kerrigan's leg. Like, That attack was not okay, obviously. And I'm uncomfortable with too much qualifying in Tanya's defense. Because no matter how crappy an upbringing she might have had, no matter how much the media didn't give her a fair shot, this was still a terrible thing that happened to Nancy. And it shouldn't have, it was a crime. It shouldn't have happened. So I don't know. I think it's a weird, you're right. There's a lot of conflicting feelings here because. What happened was wrong and shouldn't have happened. But the closer you look at it, instead of just painting the narrative that the media portrayed, which was not fair in how they portrayed Tanya Harding, the more nuanced and complicated this story really becomes. So this story gets so much more complicated, which we're going to dive into after this quick break. And we're back. Now, let's talk through some of the aftermath of the Kerrigan attack in the 90s. So basically, it later emerged that Kerrigan's attacker was Shane Stant, a hitman hired by Harding's ex-husband, with whom she was back together with at the time. So meanwhile, Tanya Harding's trying to prepare for the Olympics, and her ex, but sort of on-again, off-again husband, is going down for this crime, and... It was really controversial to begin with that Harding was allowed to compete despite this ongoing investigation that was starting to drag her in. Because during this ongoing investigation, days leading up to the Olympics that Harding is competing in, her ex-husband is starting to implicate her as part of his plea bargain that he's starting to negotiate 
you know, he's going to testify against her and that she knew all about it. She signed off on it. She goes on to place eighth in the Olympics. Quite frankly, not surprising. I would not be in my fittest form if that's what was going on in my life days leading up to the Olympics. And Nancy Kerrigan, on the other hand, rebounds from victimhood to win the silver medal. So these are two teammates on the same team, the U.S. figure skating team, tabloids, attention, drama. I mean, it was salacious as it gets as in terms of a personal Olympic story. And Kerrigan goes on to place. Meanwhile, Tanya Harding's unraveling and her, her life, her relationship and her implication in this crime are really starting to drive the narrative forward. Fun fact about Nancy Kerrigan competing, she wore the same dress that she was wearing when she was attacked in that competition, which I always thought was so baller. Brilliant. Like, yeah. I, I, like, I'm here. You didn't get the best of me. I'm here and I'm ready to do this. Also, someone had some media training. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. It really, it, honestly, it really comes down to one of them knowing how to play the media game and one of them just not. Right. Well, also, one and, of them was a victim. Right. True. Okay. So fair. she already had that going <laughs> yeah, for her. But yeah, she knew what she was she doing. She happened to also be innocent of a crime. Yeah. <laughs> also that. that. Yeah. Also that. Eventually, Harding pleaded guilty to conspiring to hinder the prosecution of the attackers. She was sentenced to three years on probation, 500 hours of community service, and $160,000 fine, and was stripped of her national championship title. She became completely excommunicated from the whole figure skating world. And frankly, a lot of folks would say, rightfully so. It all boils down to, in my opinion, like how you feel about Tanya Harding and this huge excommunication that she got from her sport, which she had, remember, broken records in, all boils down to how aware and how involved she actually was in the crime that took place. And that's where things get real interesting. That's where things get hairy. Basically, her ex-husband says, this was Tanya's idea. I went along with it to help my wife get her dream. Tanya Harding says, my ex-husband was abusive. He cooked this up as a scheme to make money for himself. And he said, if I didn't go along with it, he would kill me. And I was afraid of him. Now, bear in mind that the idea that her ex-husband was abusive is corroborated. She got a restraining order against him. There's a flurry of 911 calls documenting the abuse this guy put her through. And so the question is, do you believe Tanya Harding or do you believe her abusive ex-husband? And I think for what it's worth, I go back and forth. I don't know, you know, whether or not she knew, whether or not she didn't. Who knows? I don't know. But I think it's interesting the public's willingness to believe the most salacious version of this story, to take a documented abusive man at his word and say, oh, yes, it was this female mastermind behind the entire thing. Right. And so while I'm not saying that she did or did not know ahead of time, I'm saying I think that the public eyes willingness to cast her as the mastermind so quickly at the word of somebody who is has a documented history of abusive behavior toward her says something about our culture. It does. And it says what floated to the surface in terms of the public story because honestly, I had ambient awareness of this story and I had never heard until preparing for this episode that there was any history of abuse or that there was any wrongdoing between Tanya Harding and her ex-husband. So when you look closer, she really said, nobody was coming to my rescue at the time. My coach didn't seem to care 
that I was in an abusive relationship. My parents, my mother didn't seem to believe me, even though she had evidence, even though she was seeking out support and help and protection against this abusive partner of hers. But at the time, even though this sounds completely ridiculous to us now, the coaches and the folks who were really shaping the figure skaters of the era in the early 90s, really in the late 80s, were very mindful of the media critique that had little to do with the skating itself. It was more about creating this image of America's sweetheart, and that was an image that was very hard to piece together for Tanya Harding to begin with, and they deemed her less lovable if she was divorced at the time. Definitely. And again, even though it sounds absurd to us now, this wasn't even that long ago. It just goes to show you how far we've come when it comes to this issue. There's a really, really breathtaking long read in the Believer magazine by Sarah Marshall that really kind of sheds light on this. And again, I'm someone who followed figure skating and I didn't know this. Marshall writes, in a sport where judges routinely give skaters criticism on their hairdos and costumes and earrings and eye makeup and teeth, in a sport where, to this day, very few gay male skaters can afford to be openly gay and deal with the inevitable backlash, not just in the media, but in their scores, in a sport where women are sometimes rewarded more for sellability than skill, in a sport where gender roles are policed so rigidly on and off the ice that Tanya Harding, a petite, blonde, white woman, was somehow butch enough to register as a threat to skating's femininity, in a sport where all this went on, and the fact that it was common knowledge to the idea that the USFSA would attempt to control a skater's marital status is hardly implausible. And again, it just sounds like they were saying, Tanya, if you want to have a shot at competing, you need to be stable and married and make that happen. And I feel so bad that it just seems like the idea that she was in a controlling, abusive marriage just fell by the wayside. Yeah. Not just at the people who were supposed to protect her, her mother, her coaches, all of that, by society. I mean, the woman in the 90s was a walking punchline. And you know what? Intimate partner violence is not funny. One of the things they say is that Jeff is the only guy she ever dated. And so she went from living with her mom, who she alleges was abusive and an alcoholic, who pushed her and saw her skating as a meal ticket, to another abusive person, the first guy she ever dated when she met when she was 19. Right. And so she talks about how it just set her up for abuse as the norm in her life. Exactly. She says, quote, my mom hit me and she loved me. Jeff hits me. He loves me. It's just the way life goes. And this is in an interview. So in my mind, looking back on this story, it's much more complicated than Tanya Harding the ambitious athlete who would do anything to get ahead. And it looks a lot more like Tanya Harding, victim of abuse, who was so mismanaged, was not supported in her career as a professional skater by her family, her loved ones, or her coach, and anyone else who should have been there to help her through this scandal from a PR perspective. Or from a legal perspective, you know, she was out there on her own. Even though she was on this grand scale, she was just a young woman trying to make her way in her sport and somehow try to maintain the adoration of the American public while her ex-boyfriend potentially acted on his own or with her consent or with her constricted consent, given the abuse that she feared as retribution. It's complicated. It's complicated, but that's why I think it's so important to revisit these stories because 
the way that the public treats women in the public eye, I think tells us so much about gender, about where we've come in terms of feminism, about media, about class. And I want to dive more into the class intersections at play in this saga after a quick break. And we're back. And I think it's important to point out the ways that this saga really makes an interesting illustration of both gender and class. As we've talked about a little bit before, Nancy Kerrigan did, in fact, have working class roots, but she sort of seemed to embody a kind of more wholesome working class sentiment. Well, it's interesting. Amanda Hess wrote about this dichotomy for Slate and really points out that despite their modest beginnings and their comparable athleticism, when it came to monetizing their skills, she writes, Kerrigan was skating on an elevated plane. Though both athletes emerged from working class backgrounds, Kerrigan was blessed with patrician good looks and a sophisticated air that easily courted corporate sponsorships and Hollywood attention. Quote, Nancy looked like she was wealthy. That's how the Boston Globe reporter John Powers puts it in his documentary. So the way that Kerrigan was able to financially gain from her athleticism was dramatically different than, quote, white trash, sort of from the wrong side of the tracks, dramatic Tanya Harding. Exactly. And I think it just goes to show the ways that when it comes to dealing with women in the public eye, there's often these binaries. You're either a Madonna or a whore. You're either good or bad. You're either a vixen or innocent. And I think nothing illustrates that quite like these two women. You know, they're both these powerhouses of athleticism, but one is treated as she has this open door to endorsements and deals and financial success, the likes of which just are not open to Tanya Harding, no matter how good she is. And I think what's interesting is that in that Amanda Hess article, she actually argues that if Tanya Harding saw ice skating as her way out of poverty, even if she had won the gold, that probably was never going to happen because she just did not embody the perceived class markers of the sport. So she would always sort of be trying to prove her worth in a way that Nancy Kerrigan just never had to do. I think you even saw that not even that long ago when looking at someone like Serena Williams, who is this powerhouse tennis athlete who still had to work twice as hard to get endorsement deals when compared to somebody like Maria Sharpova. And it's interesting the ways in which certain people, because they don't fit the class or race markers that we perceive as deserving of success, deserving of endorsements, have to work twice as hard just to prove they belong. Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge the difference between your sport and the corporate component, because the corporate sponsorships are how a lot of these athletes make real money. Tanya Harding was not doing all that well financially, even when she was kicking ass athletically. At one point in this documentary, Tanya Harding recalled wearing this bright pink costume to a competition, a costume that she had actually sewn herself. And she thought it was really pretty, but one of the judges came up to her afterwards and said, if you ever wear anything like that again at a U.S. championship, you will never do another one. Saying, like, you look like garbage, basically, despite your athleticism being pristine. She shot back at the judges that unless and until they give her five grand to buy a designer outfit, you can get out of her face, you know? And meanwhile, Kerrigan had free costumes coming her way from Vera Wang because she was sponsored. 
I mean, if that doesn't demonstrate the different worlds these women were competing in, I don't know what does. Tanya Harding was making her own outfits a la Pretty in Pink. It really is fascinating how these two women's lives and the way the media and the industry treated them just show us so much about class and how it doesn't really matter what your background is in a kind of way. If you're, if you look like someone who was born into it, you're born into it. And if you aren't, you're always outside looking in. As a brand, as a business owner, I wouldn't want to put my brand in the hands of Tanya Harding. I mean, you look at Tanya Harding and you think, yeah, she's amazing. She's fiery. She's athletic. But is she going to be a good brand ambassador? And you know what? As a business owner, as someone who might, you know, seek out sponsorships and ambassadors, I would understand that wariness. It's not fair given her lack of compensation, frankly. It kind of reminds me of the um, women's hockey team. Yeah. <laughs> because we sometimes assume that people get paid for the athletics, and that's not always the case. So it just it's this weird mix between the corporate sponsorship world that is by no means based on athletic achievement alone and the world of athletics, which can sometimes include women who are trying to come up for their family and are trying to seek out this American dream and failing to pass as sponsorable. It's often tempting to pretend that class and looks and gender, that like when you make it, you're making it on your own. But this is just a good reminder that all of these different privileges come into play when you're trying to be successful. And we should own up to We should just own that. It's a reality. And I think that nothing made it clearer to me than this situation between these two women. Yeah, because the dichotomy was bizarrely stark. Okay, we already discussed a little bit of Tanya Harding's background, but can we just contrast that with Nancy Kerrigan for a second? She embodied this wholesome way of life that a lot of folks in the 90s were starting to fret was disappearing. I think it was like, this is the emergence of the religious right, too, right? So from a political standpoint, we're in a part of American politics where it's like the rise of this religious right, this backlash to skyrocketing divorce rates, you know, things that threatened the American nuclear family were already causing anxiety for a lot of conservatives and a lot of people in America writ large. And so when you get to see Nancy Kerrigan's background, who, let's see, she has a gruff but devoted father. She has a blind mother who's tough as nails and Southie inflected voice was softened only when she spoke of her daughter. And these two boisterous hockey-playing older brothers, the whole family was just easy to love. When her mother was interviewed for the New York Times, she recalled Nancy Kerrigan's reluctance to go back to the Olympic Village with the other athletes. Quote, she asked if it was okay. Of course it was okay. This is her time to be with the other kids. Nancy's always so apologetic. I don't want to say she's a perfect child, but... She's a caring child who loves family. Yeah, she loves family because as the 22-year-old baby of her family, she still lived with her parents. And when they traveled to competition, she shared a hotel room with her parents. She, quote, didn't have much time for friends or dating and didn't seem to have much interest in either, describing her mother as her best friend. It's like almost out of like a Rockwell painting. They really did represent this wholesome, bygone way of life. Again, quoting from that article from The Believer, listen to this. Nancy's mounting success was a victory not just for her or even for the Kerrigans, but for a way of life Americans feared was fast shrinking. That of the wholesome, hard scrabble working class clan. 
One network profile showed Nancy brushing her mother's hair. Another showed the Kerrigan family seated around the dinner table, toasting each other with glasses of milk. And it's, again, I remember feeling this before I even knew anything about class and intersections of race, class, gender. I remember watching her family toast with milk, not identifying with that, and thinking it felt so different. And understanding even then that this was a way of life that a lot of people in the country yearned for and that her winning was a win for that kind of life. And that the way that we demonized Tanya Harding, on the other hand, was a reminder that if you are poor, not just poor, but a specific kind of poor, like trashy poor, if you don't look a certain way, if your weight isn't a certain way, if your family is divorced and you have some complicated backstory where you've got multiple husbands and multiple stepkids, like the way that a whole lot of folks were living their lives, I understood this to be that society was telling us that that was wrong and that what the Kerrigans embodied was right. So there was a right way and a wrong way to be working class and the Kerrigans were the right way and Tanya Harding was the wrong way. And I think you really see that in the way that the media breathlessly reported all of these details about Tanya Harding's upbringing in her life. I mean, they seem to take so much joy in reporting about her mother's multiple husbands and that she was a smoker and that she worked on cars, that she had frizzy hair, that she had muscular thighs, that she didn't look a certain way and that she had legal problems and played pool. Like, It was this breathless media frenzy that was careful to remind us of the ways in which she was working class in all the wrong ways. And I think that's why I really identified with her, because I grew up feeling a similar way, that I grew up feeling completely boxed out of this upper middle class mobility, wholesome life that I think that Nancy Kerrigan represented for a lot of people. And that is why this nuance is important to understand. Because honestly, I can see where you would become a Tanya Harding apologist. I can see where it makes sense to come to the defense of Tanya Harding, not only because of the actual abuse and the context with which she was not necessarily making unconstrained choices at that time, but in the media narrative, which is a different thing. We can critique the media narrative and say this is wrong, while also saying that the crime committed against Nancy Kerrigan was also wrong. But I think you're right. The press narrative, the media narrative, says a lot more about us than it does about what happened in that fateful day. Definitely. And just to make it super clear, these are these are narratives that I think have been put on these women. And so I don't want to say, oh, Nancy Kerrigan had it coming because she had a stable family and, like, good for her. I'm glad she got hit in the knee. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that... Oftentimes, when you are a woman in the public eye, media narratives form around you, and they have very little to do with the reality of your life. And I think that Nancy Kerrigan, through no fault of her own, was put on this pedestal as America's sweetheart, our little Nancy, so poised and graceful and hardworking, like something out of Horatio Alger. And I think, like you said, Taylor Swift style, that's a narrative she probably very much would like to have been excluded from, but it was still the narrative that I saw, and it was really, really something that was so formative in my understanding of class. A lot of people say that the first time they ever understood the idea of like class markers was watching the way the media talked about these two different women. And I also would be remiss to not mention that Nancy Kerrigan, even though she was sort of upheld as America's sweetheart, even she, after this whole thing went down, was not immune to the system that builds up women just to swipe them down. After all that she went through, when she took home the silver... 
the thing that I remember most was that I almost felt like the narrative shifted and we were supposed to be annoyed by her. Like, I remember there was a video of her um, at Disney World. She's wearing the medal. She's sitting next to Mickey Mouse. She's supposed to be, like, waving to the crowd. And she's she must be, like, grouchy or something. And she keeps saying over and over again, this is the most corny thing I've ever done. This is so corny. And here's how one news program covered it. Kerrigan even had to be coached to smile. Now listen carefully to the off-camera voice that has to tell her to smile, honey. Smile, honey. <clears throat> What's this for? During a parade, Kerrigan complained to Mickey Mouse. It's so corny, so dumb. I hate it. It looks like Disney has a frosty ice princess on their hands. Oh, my gosh. It was so much worse than I remembered. So, really, this was someone who had been through so much. And we rallied around her as this, you know, America's sweetheart, just to knock her off this platform as gleefully as we put her up there. And I think it just goes to show you that it doesn't matter if you're a Madonna or a whore or classy or trashy. At the end of the day, the system upholds you one minute, will swipe you down gleefully the next and call you an ice princess. I mean, that guy basically was like, what a bitch. Can, yeah. can you believe this girl? And it's like, well, she went through a lot. Come on. Like, I, I would be grouchy too. I think this is the so what of the yeah. whole story is okay. that we expect, particularly women, to play so many different games to get ahead. And yeah. so, you know, she's an athlete. But she also has to know how to smile, know how to wave, know how to look gracious, know how to look poised. And if she doesn't, the moment that she slips up, we're done with her. Right. The moment, because she had embodied that grace and poise for so long, they contrasted her with Tanya Harding. But it doesn't matter because she can't win because she's not perfect all the time. You're so right in that as women, the moment that we fail to play this game, they're waiting gleefully to show Oh, look what a stuck-up little ice queen she is. Can you believe we called her America's sweetheart? All right, so hopefully we've unpacked all there is to unpack behind the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan, 90s drama that unfolded. We want to hear from you, Sminty listeners. Did you go check out the film I, Tanya with Margot Robbie? Do you similarly remember a young you, just like a young Bridget over here, was influenced by that dichotomy that played out in the media. What do you think about athletes and sponsorships and how those two things are not always fairly executed uh, in the world, especially of women's sports? We want to hear from you. If you want to tag us in some Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding-inspired outfits, you can tag us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, tweet at us at MomStuffPodcast, or send us a good old-fashioned email at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. 